And so I'm going to read us a verse. Uh, this is from Hebrews 12, and it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right before that, chapter 11, you get this great hall of, of fame of people who follow God. And so today we're celebrating saints that have gone before. I want to be clear. We're not saying we're going to worship the saints. We're not praying to the saints. We're celebrating Jesus follows who have gone before. There will be no shrine set up to Kierkegaard after this in the corner that we're going to pray to next week. We are celebrating Christians who have gone before and what we can learn from them. One of the benefits is uh, we often see our faith through the lenses of our current culture and current situation. One of the benefits is we have people come from other countries can share. It helps us. But an even greater benefit is we can hear from someone from previous centuries. They help step out of that and help us to refocus our eyes on how to seek first the kingdom of God first and then play it out in our own lives, in our own cultures, in our own families as a follower. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And the other thing, we're focused on Jesus, and he's the author and finisher, and for the joy set before him. And one of the reasons we do celebrations, we want to have that joy. There was an older Christian who had passed away, a pastor, and at the funeral, one of the guys that kind of knew him was curious whether he was the same in private as he was in public. So he came up to his daughter and said, you know, was he really a devout follower all the time? And, and she said, yes, my father was very devout. He never committed a single pleasure. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be more serious than God or forget about how to have joy and laugh and do that stuff together. So that's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to do it four to six weeks. We've got a couple more planned. And we want to help you enjoy just being alive. It's a good thing. And so today, this is not, remember, it has to stay the samers and changers. This is a changer thing, right, what we're doing now. So we're going to try something we've never tried before. We have three people, Adria Day, Justin Morgan, and Stuart Hires, who are going to share a little bit about someone who has inspired them in their walk with Jesus. So we're going to do that, and we'll see how it goes. We've never tried this before. So with that, Adria, you can come up, and I'm going to pray for you, and then you'll be able to get started, but you can get yourself set up. Lord, I pray that you would bless Adria. Uh, you have gifted her with a life that lives out um, such fullness in following you and such joyful anticipation in, in what you'll do in and around her, Lord. And I pray as she speaks that your truth would come through her and that we would have a clearer view for how to walk in you after listening to her speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. So I'm Adria Day. Um, can you guys hear me? We're good? Okay. Um, and I decided to go way back to medieval times and teach you guys maybe a little bit about Hildegard of Bingen. Um, she's someone who inspires me to, as they say, listen with the ears of my heart. So um, I hope this blesses you. So I'm going to start with her story. Um, it's 1098, 
a couple of years after um, Pope Urban's preachings launched the Crusades. And it's Rhineland, which is now Germany. And a baby girl is born to a soldier and a noblewoman. And she's different from the start. She's highly energetic, but she's prone to sickness. And she gets these migraine headaches all the time. And she also starts seeing visions at the earliest she could remember, four or five years old, where she sees um, this divine light, and she thinks of it as a reflection of God's light, kind of like how you would see a reflection of the sun or moon in the water. Um, so she sees this as a reflection of God's light, and the Holy Spirit starts speaking to her about God's love for her, for humanity, for all of his creation. And um, she keeps having these visions. And when she's just eight years old, her parents give her as a tithe to the church. So she didn't choose this path. Her parents and the cho church chose it for her. But this is the path that she walked. And she, um, this anchoress named Jetta, took care of her and educated her. And an anchoress would live in a cell attached to a monastery. So they lived in a Benedictine community. And um, she was thankful for this life, though, because it afforded her an education. She probably had access to a library. She got trained in music and arts. And um, she was able to really cultivate an even deeper relationship with God because of the daily offices of prayer and the spiritual disciplines. And so she um, just had this deep, deep understanding of God's love, and it really propelled everything that she did. And these were the dark ages. There was a lot of fear. There were um, plagues, famines, um, the Crusades, and there wasn't really an understanding of science. And here she is. She's not afraid of the natural world. She sees it as, you know, God's creation here to sustain us, as we do God's work. Um, so she was quite different than her contemporaries in that way. Um, when she was 15, she took the veil. And again, even though she didn't choose this life, she was so thankful for it. And she um, used whatever agency she had to um, serve God and to develop her gifts. So a um, couple of things. She actually... She had a lot of fear about sharing her visions because she kept having those visions of God's light where the Holy Spirit would speak to her. And there was a lot of fear surrounding that. She thought that they would call her a heretic, that they would think she was crazy, that she'd be shunned by her community. And so um, she didn't speak out. She didn't find her voice until she was 40 years old. And when she was 40, she got really, really sick. She thought she was going to die. And the Lord gave her another vision and spoke to her and said to share her vision so that people could understand more of the depths of his love for them. So she listened. She obeyed, overcame that fear. And eventually she gained approval from the papacy, and she was allowed to speak as the Holy Spirit moved her. But she... Um, after she found her voice, her health greatly improved, and she actually lived to be 81 years old. Um, 
she was quite remarkable for the time period because not only was she a Benedictine abbess, but she also was an artist. She wrote music. She um, was a theologian. She went on preaching tours, which was pretty incredible for the time period, especially as women really didn't have much of a voice in the church. And when she would go on these preaching tours, she would call out um, corruption of the priests and call out their immorality. And um, she just had a really strong voice in that way, too. Um, let me see here. Okay, so uh, some of her works, she founded um, two abbeys, and she uh, had to fight hard for those because they really didn't want her out of the jurisdiction of the monks. But she kind of basically wore her opponents down um, by imploring and pleading with them to start these new abbeys. And she had a less strict, more holistic interpretation of Benedictine rule. So while they still had all of their spiritual disciplines and their daily offices of prayer, um, she actually allowed them time to converse with each other and time to celebrate. And when they would have feasts, she would allow them to wear white veils and tiaras and gems to celebrate being the bride of Christ. Um, she had a wider body of writings than really any of her contemporaries male or female. She wrote theology. She wrote some of the first virtue plays, um, hymns, chants, little essays on botany and health. Um, she wrote sermons. She wrote letters. And what's pretty remarkable is during this time, you know, people had just this huge fear of the natural world. And because of all of her time spent with Jesus, she saw his creation as um, being put there to really sustain us and to help us do his work. So a lot of people came to her for advice and even like herbal remedies and things like that. Um, I was reading some of her letters that were translated from Latin, and I was kind of struck by this one that she wrote to a count who was leading a crusade, and she told him, why are you murdering the very people that um, God wants you to spread his kingdom to and share his gospel with? So I think, you know, in her understanding of the Crusades, kind of in her sheltered religious community, um, she was pro-Crusades, but she didn't understand all of what was going on. And when she caught wind of it, she wrote a lot of, you know, heated letters to these men saying, like, don't kill the very people that you're supposed to be spreading the gospel to. So I thought that was really um, kind of remarkable for her to use her voice in that way. Uh, let's see here. Oh, I think I skipped one. Did I tell you guys she went on three public preaching tours? Did I say that already? Yeah, okay. All right, so um, her theology was different than her contemporaries. Uh, remember, these were such dark times in a lot of ways. There was so much fear surrounding people, and a lot of her contemporaries would just, there was a lot of finger pointing, calling out heresies. Um, there was a lot of fear of the natural world. And she centered on God's divine love, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, their love for humanity, and their love poured out in creation. 
Um, and I just wanted to share with you a few samplings of her writing. And remember that these are taken out of context because they're just little excerpts. And some of these might make her sound like a little more universalist. But she actually was pretty orthodox. She believed in a literal heaven, a literal hell, a literal Satan. Um, but if, you, if you're interested in reading more about her, I would encourage you to read these in context. Um, but during preaching tours, she might greet people like this. Good people, most royal greening verdancy, rooted in the sun, you shine with radiant light. How's that for a greeting? Um, on God's love, she said, all of creation is a song of praise to God. Love abounds in all things, excels from the depths to beyond the stars, is lovingly disposed to all things. On medicine, she said, humankind, full of all creative possibilities, is God's work. Humankind alone is called to assist God. Humankind is called to co-create. With nature's help, humans can set into creation all that is necessary and life-sustaining. Um, to church officials on their corruption and immorality, these were some fighting words. She said, the winds are burdened by the utterly awful stink of evil, selfish goings-on. Thunderstorms menace. The air belches out the filthy uncleanliness of the people's. Um, on stewarding creation, she was very forward-thinking. She said, the earth which sustains humanity must not be injured. It must not be destroyed. And then on people who are made in the image of God, she said, humanity, take a good look at yourself. Inside, you've got heaven and earth and all of creation. You are a world. Everything is hidden in you. So a couple of takeaways there are quite a few things we can learn from her, but I had to pare it down. Um, just simply put, we can thank God for our lot and our portion. She didn't choose her life path. Uh, it was chosen for her, but she thanked God for it, and she used whatever she had within that to rule and reign with Jesus. So we can think of how we can do the same in our lot and our portion in life. Um, and the last thing, um, to use your mind and creativity to rule and reign with Jesus. You know, she um, used whatever agency she had within these really strict boundaries of culture, of the religious system, and she used her mind to find a way to partner with Jesus and co-create with him. And, um, you know, when she was prompted by the Spirit, she found her voice, and she used her gifts. So I would just encourage you guys um, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to find your voice, and to use your gifts for his glory. And that's all. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Adria. Lord, I pray that we would all find our voice, that we would find our voice for your glory and learn how to speak words of truth and life. All right, Stuart, you're up next. Uh, Murphy's Law has struck again for me. Uh, Dr. Love, you know all about Murphy's Law. I don't know where you are, but we experienced that last week. Uh, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Um, so, <laughs> it, you know, I, I had done all my homework and you know, prepared all this stuff, 
and I realized that I sent the wrong thing or the wrong version of my work to my wife on Friday to get printed out. So this morning, I spent the entire morning just fervently scribbling everything out, trying to remember the things that I had said. So hopefully this comes together coherently and, uh, you know, at least, you know, we appreciate Adria going first, you know, being the guinea pig. You know, what if the mic didn't work? What if, you know, everything just fell apart? What if the slides didn't work? Stuff like that. By the way, let me grab that. There we go. All right, so um, <clears throat> if you haven't been able to pronounce this guy's name yet, uh, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, so I'm going to do my best to focus on his life and focus on seeing his character come through his life as opposed to focusing specifically on his writings. Um, I, I say I met Dietrich Bonhoeffer the first time in high school, and uh, I picked up a book, and it, you know, being at that point I'd been a Christian for maybe, you know, I said Christ follower for a few months. I picked up the book, uh, Cost of Discipleship, read the back of it, read a page of it, and I realized, nope, not ready. I'm not ready for this. Uh, and then I met him a few years later, and I remember there was this book that, I, that I'd been wanting to read, and so I, I went and found the book. Uh, I'll go more into really the impact that he had on my life uh, towards the end, but uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has just, you know, time and again come back up in my life. He's shaped how I see the church, how I see community. And uh, I hope that, if nothing else, after this talk, you know, you'll, you'll want to, you know, seek those things out. Maybe not even specifically Bonhoeffer, uh, but just in general. Uh, looking back to the things that uh, people that have come before us, Christians that have come before us, the things that they experienced, the things that they went through, the things that they had to say on the church, on Christ, um, are just completely invaluable. All right. So uh, Bonhoeffer, he... Uh, grew up in Germany. Uh, he was obviously, like all of us, shaped by his family. Um, he was born to uh, his father, the leading psychiatrist in Germany, as well as his mother, who was highly educated and also the descendant of German royalty. Uh, so it's kind of hard to top that. Uh, needless to say that there were there were a lot of expectations put on Bonhoeffer from a very young age. Um, and he was the type of person that really, he, he took those on. Uh, he was, he became, he started becoming well-known in the academic circles early on, excelled. He eventually becomes a professor. Uh, he becomes a uh, pastor, theologian, uh, lecturer, uh, and he's eventually martyred for all of his work. Uh, because at the heart of what he was trying to do, what he wanted to do was uphold biblical truth. He wanted to continue to bring about true faith in Christ. He wanted to develop uh, unity within the church. And as many of you know, uh, with the issues going on in Germany in the 1930s and moving on, uh, that was not a great thing according to the state. So, um, <clears throat> uh, he was also formed by uh, the close relationships that he formed outside of Germany. Um, if any of you have heard of Karl Barth, uh, Karl Barth was one of the leading theologians at the time, uh, I believe from Switzerland, uh, as well as uh, Bishop George Bell, and as well as some experiences uh, with folks in America as he traveled there. Um, as the Nazi regime continued to grow in influence and oppression, uh, Bonhoeffer's character shone through. 
Uh, he evolved from a pacifist that disagreed with the direction of the regime uh, to its most outspoken dissident. Uh, he formed the Free Church uh, to oppose the state church, acted as a double agent against the state as well. Uh, up to the point of his execution, Bonhoeffer remained constant in his faith. Uh, this would not have been possible without his personal relationship with God, as well as the people around him. All right. So, uh, in his early formative years, Bonhoeffer, like I said, was split between these two worlds of academia and ministry. Uh, he was quickly recognized as uh, kind of like the eventual successor uh, to this uh, theologian, Karl Barth. Uh, Bonhoeffer spent time as a lecturer and professor at uh, the University in Berlin. Uh, that being said, Bonhoeffer was continually and ultimately drawn to ministry. Uh, he took an early trip to Rome uh, in his late teens. And uh, with, with all the issues with the Catholic Church at the time, he goes into St. Peter's Basilica and he sees this, this scene of, of people coming from all over the world to worship at this one altar. And so he sees this multicultural family of God worshiping all at once, something that he's never experienced having spent most of his life in Germany. Uh, it just had a great impact on him. He said the universality of the church was illustrated in a marvelously effective manner. Later, he spent a year in Spain. Uh, he ministered to a German congregation uh, in Spain. And, and again, one of, the, one of the greatest formations in his view on ministry, on uh, Christian unity, was working with the children. Uh, slight plug, you should go work with the kids back there. It's a great thing. All right, so uh, Bonhoeffer later formed a monastic treat for men. Uh, he emphasized many of the traditional monastic habits, prayer, solitude, uh, but he also recognized the importance of unity and close interaction between the members. And so um, I have this quote up here I, because it really truly symbolizes his, his life at this time. Uh, the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us receive the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Uh, he was just absolutely uh, compelled to bring people together in unity within the church. Bonhoeffer was later invited to Union Theological Seminary, which, if you don't know, is in New York City. Uh, to be blunt, he was not satisfied with the state of the church in America. He said, the church is really no longer the place where the congregation hears and preaches God's word, but rather the place where we one acquires secondary significance as a social entity for this or that purpose. Essentially, the church is just where people go to have fun, hang out, have a social gathering. Where Bonhoeffer was impressed was the passion and support within the many African-American churches that he visited. What he sensed there was true worship, reliance on Scripture, and all this despite, of course, being in the 1930s, the racial inequalities at this time in America. So during this time, Bonhoeffer remained a pacifist. Uh, he was generally avoided political entanglements because, again, his sole focus was ministry. All right. 
Despite how much Bonhoeffer was enriched through his travels, he eventually decides that he needs to stay at home. There's too much turmoil. The Nazi regime is coming into more and more power. And again, as you folks probably already know, they're becoming more and more oppressive. Bonhoeffer's resistance started small. It started with pamphlets, radio broadcasts, lectures, sermons. He would use pretty much any avenue he could to relay biblical truth versus what was being preached by the state. As the regime was able to successfully install leaders within the state church, Bonhoeffer began to bring pressure from outside the, uh, Germany, from the church outside of Germany. Uh, and this is where his, his friendships and relationships with uh, the likes of Karl Barth, again, Bishop George Bell in England, and others, he really tried to bring their voices in to bring the state church back into the fold of the, with God. Um, Bonhoeffer, because of the continued pressure from uh, the government within the state church, uh, Bonhoeffer eventually helped form the Confessing Church, which was a free church, which if you've ever wondered what the free and evangelical free means, it's very similar to this. Essentially, you had a state church, the government was running the church, and you had a group of people that wanted to get back to biblical truth, and that is, in essence, a free church. He also established a seminary to train those within the church. But of course, eventually, the Nazi regime finds out, and they shut this down. Later, Bonhoeffer agreed to join the military intelligence service as a spy for the state. He was supposed to travel Europe, use all these contacts to move around the continent, and gain intelligence for the state. In reality, he was helping Jews escape the country through those extensive contacts. It was through his work in helping Jews escape that he was discovered and initially imprisoned. You know, it... it, it in, in, uh, in a turn of events, uh, some of you may have already realized this, hire a good accountant, because what got him in prison was the financial auditors. Okay? Uh, while in prison, a conspirator was caught and gave up Bonhoeffer as being involved in a conspiracy to overthrow Hitler. Because of this, Bonhoeffer was subsequently tried for treason and sentenced to death. Bonhoeffer was executed on April 9th, 1945. Germany surrendered one month later, for all of you history buffs, May 8, 1945. In the two years that Bonhoeffer was in prison, he never stopped writing, preaching, and ministering to those around him. In fact, he preached his last sermon the morning of his execution. As much of his life had been geared towards solitude, brotherhood, and seeking God, these elements were never lost throughout his imprisonment. He had unknowingly been trained to thrive in this situation. So, again, this is from uh, another one of his famous works. Uh, Bonhoeffer lived this out. And again, this is why he was such an impact on me at a young age. Chief grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. <clears throat> yes. Do you mind if I do that? Absolutely. Yeah, I might do that. 
Did I go over? Yeah, because what I'll do, um, I want Justin to get to share, if that's okay, Stuart. Yeah. And we can have, if you guys want to do more on Bonhoeffer, um, you can ask. And the same with Adria's idea, that the, she started, there's deeper, going deeper. And we want to give you guys a chance to do that, so if you can talk to either of them. And the other thing, Adria and uh, Stuart, do you mind going to the outdoor service? There's a group waiting out there to, to hear it as well. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Church used to run to 1130. So all you guys are used to that. And usually we have church that ends at about 11. So we're going to go about 10, 12 minutes over. The buses will wait. And so will the crockpots. That's the beauty of a crockpot. It just simmers. So your lunch is safe. It's not lunchtime yet. So uh, Justin Morgan is going to share, and uh, he's going to close in prayer, and then the service will be over after that. So Justin Morgan. So a few weeks ago when Brian asked me to speak, two things immediately popped into my head. Number one was the person I wanted to speak about, which is Soren Kierkegaard. And the second was something that I did last year about this time. So in 2020, um, I felt compelled to sit down and write out this sort of personal manifesto called Why I Am a Christian. And just sort of work out and reason through why do I follow Jesus? What, what does that mean? Why am I here? What am I doing? Um, and I want to kind of wrestle through that and, and reason through that and just work out why I am a Christian. Um, and I, I ended up with 21 reasons. And I put them in three categories. So there was experiential, philosophical, and historical. And in the historical category, one of the reasons was, um, as Christians, we have this rich intellectual heritage behind us. If we look at church history and those who've gone before us, there are numerous brilliant minds, uh, theologians, philosophers, scientists, inventors, mathematicians. We just have this vast uh, knowledge behind us and these brilliant, brilliant minds um, that have gone before us. We, ha we have this rich intellectual heritage, heritage as Christians. We're in very good company as believers. And one of those brilliant minds is Soren Kierkegaard. And I want to get a feel for who's familiar with this guy. So no shame here, but raise your hand if you've never heard of Soren Kierkegaard. No shame. Okay, raise your hand if you have heard of Kierkegaard. Okay, good. Keep your hand up if you've read one of his books. Okay, not as many. Okay, so we don't hear about him a whole lot. He's not mentioned in a lot of sermons. Um, if you take a philosophy class, you will hear about him. If, if you're in grad school and seminary, you will probably hear about him, but he's not mentioned a whole lot. Um, but I have this book here called 131 Christians Everyone Should Know, and he's mentioned as a, a mover and a shaker. And uh, he was one that, that sort of stirred the pot, and he, he upset people, and he was very vocal and opinionated, and um, he was a Danish philosopher uh, living, as you see here, in the 19th century. And um, he, if I had to sum up his message, if I had to sum up his thesis in two words, these are the two words. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up and give up your safe, comfortable, cozy, shallow, sentimental, convenient, complacent Christianity. Okay? Yeah. 
um, his, his primary target in his writings was Christendom, this sort of nationalized, nominal Christianity, this cultural Christianity where if you're born in Lynchburg, Virginia, you're a Christian, okay? We, we kind of know that, right? The Bible Belt, we hear that. Um, and so he's trying to wake up a sleepy, lazy church that just sort of went through the motions, believed the right things, and went about their day. Um, and so his message here is to wake up. He saw Christianity as a compassionate or a passionate commitment to imitate a person, not a social club, as, as Stuart was kind of mentioning with Bonhoeffer. It's not a social club. It's not just one more adjective in your social media profile. Okay? It's something that defines the very core of you. Um, so let me go to the slide here. So if I had to recommend two of his books, Fear and Trembling is probably his most popular. Um, it's pretty intense. It's pretty dark. Um, it's, it's pretty dense as well. Uh, it's more philosophical. Um, a more practical, more devotional-like book is called Practice in Christianity. And in this book, he's trying to um, lay out the requirements of a Christian. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because at that time, it was just being Danish, right? He was just being a Dane. If you lived um, in his country, you were by default a Christian. And he was trying to get rid of that idea. So um, Fear and Trembling, Practice in Christianity, I highly recommend those. Um, but the thing that I think we can learn a lot from Kierkegaard, beyond all of his philosophical thoughts, um, whoops, wow, I don't know what I did. Okay, um, Jesus uses broken people to build his kingdom. When we think of a hero of the faith, when we think about um, a saint, we think about someone who kind of has it all together, who lived this victorious, courageous life. Um, Kierkegaard was a very broken man like many of us. He was very broken. So I want to just kind of list a few biographical details here. Um, he had a very gloomy, melancholy personality, uh, very gloomy disposition. Um, he was surrounded by death and tragedy. Five of his six siblings died at a young age. Um, friends, other friends and family members around him died. So he was just haunted by death um, most of his life. Um, he struggled with school. It took him 10 years to finish his college degree. Um, and uh, he really struggled with it, um, and he suffered from deep depression, anxiety. Um, in fact, today he'd probably be diagnosed as bipolar. Um, he was very physically frail. Even this photo here shows you how kind of a hunchback he was. He, he had a crooked frame. He, he walked funny. He was a very small person. He was very insecure about this. Um, he abandoned his career to be a pastor. He, he trained to be a pastor, but kind of gave it up and never actually got a job. He was unemployed all of his life. Um, he lived on a very small inheritance. Um, he broke off a year-long engagement with the love of his life, uh, Regina Olsen. Um, he was deeply in love with this woman, but he broke off the engagement because he didn't want to drag her into this gloomy, melancholy, depressed life that he lived. And so he, he broke it off, and it kind of haunted him all of his life. He, he, he kind of regretted this, but he went back and forth, and he was a very indecisive person. Um, he was riddled with indecision and doubts. Um, he never really left Denmark. He went to Sweden one time. Uh, he went to Berlin a few times. But other than that, he was pretty much a recluse. He, he lived at home. He stayed at home, and he wrote books. Okay. Um, and then at age 42, he died of tuberculosis and spi a spinal disease. So he lived a young life. He died at 42. So by man's standards, by today's standards, he was a failure. Okay. He never got a job, never had his lustrous career, never got married, never had children. 
was a lonely, depressed man. Um, but he spent most of his life writing books. He wrote, I think, 22 books um, uh, in his life. And he, he really shook the country. He really shook his, his culture and got them to wake up and to stop playing this part or, or sort of going through the motions. Um, and so many of us, we have our hangups, we have our struggles, we're broken people. And I think that uh, Kierkegaard reminds us that it doesn't matter about our hangups and our weaknesses, our insecurities, our doubts. God can use us anyway. And I love this quote here. I'm going to pull it up. He says this, never cease loving a person and never give up hope for him. For even the prodigal son who had fallen most low could still be saved. Uh, the, I can't read that. I think I got cut off. The bitter enemy, I think is what it says. The bitter enemy and also he who was your friend could again be your friend. Love that has grown cold can kindle. So in the context of Jesus using broken people, we have broken people all around us um, that are messed up. And, and we are included in that. And he says here, don't give up on them. Love them and never stop loving them because God can use them. God uses broken people to build his kingdom. Um, I want to end real quickly with a challenge. As, as some of you know, I teach uh, writing and literature at CVCC and at Liberty. And so my homework assignment for you all, my writing assignment, is to sit down and write a personal manifesto and call it Why I Am a Christian. And think about that. Work through that and figure out, you know, why do I believe this? Why do I follow Jesus? Is it because my parents did? Is it because I'm in Lynchburg, Virginia, and it's easy? But think about you know, why you are a Christian. If, if a doubter or a skeptic came to you and asked you, hey, why are you a Christian? What would you say to them? Kierkegaard wants you to think through that. All right, I want to um, close with a prayer. So, Richie, if you can come on up for the blessing song. Um, this is a prayer that Kierkegaard wrote. And I want us to sort of think through this and, and pray it to ourselves. He says, Lord Jesus Christ, you did not come to the world to be served and thus not to be admired either, or in that sense, worshipped. You yourself were the way and the life, and you have asked only for imitators. If we have dozed off into this infatuation, wake us up. Rescue us from this error of wanting to admire or adoringly admire you instead of wanting to follow you and be like you. Amen.